I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm with my friend Charlie Deist, who is not only the technician, he also keeps me on track with occasional questions and timely summarizations. This is episode one, The Vision for You, How to Discover the Life You Were Made For. David, you wrote this book about a set of exercises that you've used and that you learned and that you're sharing with other people uh, on how to discover their vocation. It's very relevant to sort of the stage in my life where I find myself trying to really hone in on what I'm supposed to be doing. What made you write this book? Well, the, the first thing I think is that the impact that it had on my life is has been great. I, I, I met this guy 30 years ago now, a guy called David Bertwistle, and I, I give the story of this in the book. Um, and the amazing thing is that uh, despite the fact that I was, I was in my mid-twenties, very, I would have called myself an atheist, very cynical and negative about anything to do with Christianity uh, or any other religion, um, and yet this guy who was in his early 60s, who I met through a mutual friend, and uh, was this other, my friend was also being helped by him, uh, convinced me over a cup of coffee in a, uh, a cafe in the King's Road in Chelsea in West London <clears throat> to start a programme, a pretty rigorous programme of spiritual exercises in the Western uh, mystical tradition. Um, and so uh, it, it's changed the direction of my life. It um, made me believe that um, it was possible for me to have a, a career instantly. That's how he sold it on to me. Um, that was fun and I would enjoy that, that a job isn't just a, um, <clears throat> a necessary evil. But in fact, it opened up far more. He was, because of the these were spiritual exercises. It was a process uh, whereby I discerned my personal vocation and coming from atheism, that led me to God um, and ultimately to the Catholic Church. Um, David handled this very uh, wisely and discerningly. Uh, he was aware of my prejudices and I talk about the process by which he did that. Um, so I wanted to make this available. I, I've taken several people through this process myself in the years since and seen many, many people that David has helped. And it always seems to open up their lives in the same way. Um, and also, I, I have realized that this is something that is not generally available to people. I think a lot of people would, would benefit from this and would welcome the gifts that it gave me. Uh, there is the, the other question, I think, is why write it now, so, so long afterwards? Um, and the reason for that is, one, that I, I had time to write the book. <laughs> it's always the, the practicalities. Um, but also, I've been blogging a little bit. Uh, my blog, The Way of Beauty, um, some people will be aware of that. And whenever I wrote articles that um, talked, at least in part, about the guidance that I was given that enabled me to become an artist, I, I probably had um, as positive a reaction to those as any uh, blog posts that I've written. 
Um, and I put them up several times as a result. And I always get people coming back and uh, saying, I've tried what you've described and it's it's helped me. And I thought, well, I haven't even described a fraction of it. Um, so uh, that made me think, I think there might be interest there. And so I, I set to and wrote the book. And it's, it's quite long and detailed. Um, I, there are lots of, I anticipate all the questions that people could ask. And so... Uh, it's it's a thorough process. So set the scene a little bit for when you discovered these uh, these exercises when they were given to you when you learned them from from this this fellow David. Uh, what was your current state in life? What was your what were your uh, interests? What were you doing? And then related to that, uh, how do you distinguish between a job and a vocation? What is this word vocation? Right. Um, so I was in my mid-twenties and on the face of it everything should have been going well for me Um, I had a degree from a very good university I I went to Oxford for my undergraduate I got a master's degree in engineering from an American university this should open up opportunities Um, but I just couldn't see that it was taking me to anywhere that I was interested in. I didn't know what to do and I was feeling miserable um, and I wasn't even sure I wanted a job in engineering or science you know, and I just did not know what to do or how to break out of this um, and I could see my friends um, who, my peers from university, particularly from Oxford, who were doing very well and uh, seemed to be enjoying their jobs and I looked at what they were doing uh, one, I'm not sure I could have done what they did. A lot of them went into finance in London. I didn't know that was, I was suited to that. It certainly wasn't something I was interested in. But um, I couldn't imagine enjoying their day-to-day lives. And when I thought about it, I just thought, I, I just don't know what I would enjoy. Is, is this what life is? It's just, um, you know, the next 40 years of boredom and then you retire. Uh, and then death. I mean, that's how life seemed to me. I, I, I even I tried a few things. I started a job as an accountant, and I'm sure accountancy is for some, but um, I, the way it felt to me was, you know, this is just terrible. I'm waiting for retirement and then death, and so I might as well be waiting for death, and that's at the age of 25 or something. Um, and This was, you were 25 years old. I was 25 years old, yeah. And I, I discarded the accountancy at that point. But I'd, I'd actually gone into something that was a little more vocational. I was finding fac, uh, staff for charities for a headhunting firm or a, a recruitment firm in London. Vocational meaning? What, see, vocational in the sense of I thought that it might suit me better. You know, putting aside money, making the sacrifice of doing something that was good and I could see was valuable. I see. Uh, but even that, the, the day-to-day mechanics of it actually weren't that different from what other people did, except I was getting paid a lot less as far as I could work out. And um, it just didn't seem fulfilling. And so I just didn't know what to do about it. Um, I'd seen this friend of mine, uh, who I didn't know that well, but you know, I knew well enough to see that... Um, he, something had happened to him. He changed direction. Um, and I, I, I was too proud, really, to ask him what it was. Um, 
But I met him for coffee one day, and he just said to me, "Well, actually, my friend David is is going to come along later. You don't, you know, you're free to join us if you wish, but um, you don't have to." So I thought, "Well, that's it. I'm not. I'm definitely not going to. I don't want to meet this this guy." Um, and uh, he arrived while we were still there. He arrived early, uh, and he was a a gentleman in his 60s, grey hair. He wore a blazer and pale ribbed uh, corduroy trousers. Uh, he might even have had a, a handkerchief in the pocket of his blazer. Yeah, he looked like a gentleman of the old school. Mm-hmm. Uh, he walked with a stick and was erect. And I realised later it's because he had a very bad heart condition, suffered from angina, and he was out of breath uh, if he walked more than... 20 yards or something, but that meant he walked slowly and he had this upright bearing, which gave a sense of dignity and self-possession, actually. Um, and he just sat down with us and uh, he in, involved me in the conversation and started to talk to me and ask me what I was doing and uh, the conversation developed from there and uh, that's how it started. Uh, and made me believe that what he had and what my friend had was on offer to me too. Now, the other question you asked was about personal vocation. Uh, This word in the Catholic context, of course, means uh, if if we use the word vocation, very often it refers to uh, becoming a priest or religious, something like that. Perhaps state of life, marriage. Um, But the way that I'm using the word, and I'd heard that if you use the word, the phrase personal vocation, this is generally what's used to describe it. But I'm talking about almost every aspect of your life. So not only your career or your job, uh, but where you want to be, who you want to be with, if anybody, um, what you do for uh, in your pastime, all of that is part of our vocation. And God has a plan for us. Um, and the, more, the closer we move towards that, the happier we'll be. So there's a unique quality to the process where it's given from one person to the next. And you go into a lot of detail about uh, the person, David, who, who introduced this to you. And I love the description of him that you gave, this, this you know, poised uh, gentleman in his, in his 60s. And here, you're 25. Uh, you've got, you know, I guess... You, you end up describing how, how much you learned from him through this process. Uh, but that idea of being from one person to another, uh, what, what can this offer people who are picking up a copy and uh, trying to go about it themselves? Is this book sort of a substitute? Is this like you distilled David into a book and now you can give it to someone and they can... Uh, almost, you know, unpack his his entire wisdom and download it into their lives, or is there more to it? Well, I think there's more to it, but it might be that, and I, I wrote it with the hope that it might, that if all that people could get was the book, it might help them. Um, but I wanted to make sure that all the information was there, not just how to do it, but consideration of the way in which you do it. And um, so... If, if I thought about it, I think that th- th- there are two ways optimally that it, it would be useful. One is if you meet somebody who's done this process and they help you through it. And, and I'll come back to why I think this person-to-person contact is so important in a second. Um, 
then it it will act as a, a backup and a resource for both parties. The one who's um, beginning, being shown the process, and the one you know the the spiritual guide and the person being guided. Um, but also, there's a lot of, I'm rooting it in uh, the Catholic faith, and I was an atheist, and David didn't mention Catholicism at all, so he couldn't have handed me that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, would, I would have ignored it, I would have disregarded it. Um, so I thought about that, and I thought, well, I can't uh, write a book that's aimed at all markets. So this one is really, it's written uh, with Catholics in mind, um, to explain how it works. And the idea is that whether through the book, and I'm hoping that Catholics will have some background that they'll understand some of the principles that are given there, um, or uh, through contact with somebody as well, um, they will experience this transformation. And the book will then show them how to be that evangelist in the way that David was. Um, And David, by the way, did more than just show me the process and teach me my personal vocation. This this guidance went on for years. He's the one who referred me to the church, ultimately. Uh, but he picked his moment. Um, and so I think it's a manual for some people to be, to be transformed into evangelists in the world. I'm hoping that it will help Catholics not only to change their own lives, but then to, to, to show them how they might reach out to people beyond the church through personal connection. And that's why I focus so much on the way David convinced me. Yeah, so you came into it as an atheist, but you came out of it as an evangelist, not, you know, an understanding of the Christian life as one that's about kind of going outside of yourself and, and uh, spreading the word, spreading what you've come to believe is foundational to the meaning of your life, of everyone's life, uh, I was just thinking about how part of the process for publishing this book was coming up with which categories we wanted to list it in on <laughs> Amazon, and we could have gone one route, which would have which would be like uh, self help or yes. uh, you know personal growth. Uh, we can think of books like Think and Grow Rich, which you mention in here, and you talk about what makes this different. Uh, there's another one that you mentioned. Uh, I think it, it's called You Are a Badass. Yeah. Uh, so you've got this whole huge industry of books that are catering to this desire that people have to make something more of their life. But most of them are sort of centered around uh, superficial spiritual principles like Think and Grow Rich, where it's really just about kind of uh, you know projecting your intention out in the universe. And God is defined as this vague force that, uh, that will, will help you when you put that intention out there. Or maybe it's just, you know, this, this kind of mentality of, uh, you know, self as idol, idolizing the self and what you can accomplish if you, yes. uh, if you believe in yourself. Uh, I, I've seen a bumper sticker around town twice in the last month. It says, like, be true to thine own self. That's the, and it's sort of like, okay, well, but, but what, is, what is myself? How do I know yeah. what myself actually is? And that's where, by taking it in this direction of rooting it in the traditions of the church, I think that this book uh, goes a lot deeper than that. And so we ended up putting it in two categories. Uh, within the Christian life category, uh, it's it's found under spiritual growth and also liturgy. So this rooting in the Christian tradition, and in particular, you say uh, Western mysticism, uh, that is what kind of sets this apart. Um, can you talk a little yes. bit about what it was that 
um, eventually brought you to believe that the church had the fullness of truth and that this, uh, this, this sort of, you know, Christian mysticism was, was, uh, really important to centering your vocation on something that would not just be superficial or self-serving. Right. Yes. Um, th- that, that was interesting because as you say, on the face of it, it sounds similar the way it was sold to me in a way, and I stress that, as a sort of an alternative to think and grow rich. This can give you what you want. But actually what David taught, stressed more than anything was happiness. And he said you know, he was sure that God wanted us to be happy and this, that if we do God's will, that's what it'll give us. And there's no harm in striving for the things we want as long as they're not immoral or bad in themselves. Then there's no reason to believe that that hasn't come from God. And if we're leading a good and moral life and we're open to God's call, and th- th- this process shows us uh, a way to be sensitive to that, um, then w- it will take us to where we're meant to be, which might be what we're striving for, but it could be somewhere else, and always somewhere that is good for us and that, that is happy. Um, now, the, yes, it's interesting you mentioned the liturgy. So what happened was I had this profound change and... Uh, very quickly, uh, I developed a faith in God. And the way that David did this was it was by presenting me, although again, he didn't tell me this is what he was doing, Pascal's wager. Um, he just said, uh, you don't have to believe in God, but if you do things that are consistent with the idea that he exists, um, in other words, you just have to be willing enough to do these things, uh, this will work. So he said, is there any reason why you can't do these things, like getting on your knees and praying and asking dad, asking God to look after us that day? And I said, well, as long as I don't have to do it publicly or anything like that or tell anyone else I'm doing it, mm-hmm. I can't see that I'm losing anything other than uh, you know, the material on the knees of my trousers. So right. uh, I, couldn't, I said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to do that. Um, nothing to lose and everything to gain. Nothing to lose, everything to gain. Uh, and you might as well take the chance. Right. And I could be as sceptical and doubtful as I liked, he said, but this it would open the door. And that's exactly what happened. And eventually, <clears throat> I, I, well, actually, and quite quickly, I mean, immediately and incrementally and steadily, but the days it added up, um, I had a faith. It worked. The things he was telling me had an impact on my life. I was happier, as well as things starting to happen for me. And so... I wanted to know, after several months of doing this, um, where it had come from. And I started to read. I wanted, I wanted this sense of the spiritual journey to continue. And David would suggest books to me, um, things like, like the English mystics. And he wouldn't say anything about this. Why don't you read this, lad? He always called me lad. And so I'd say, oh, okay, I'm not sure about this. The cloud of unknowing. Mm, okay. Who's uh, that by? That's by an English mystic, an anonymous mystic from, I think, the 14th or the 15th century. There's, oh. there's this, these little... And I didn't realize that what he was doing, he was um, picking books that he thought would suit me. Uh, Scott Peck's Road Less Traveled was another one. So it was, And then also uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, who's a... British uh, writer who was great for me actually he spent his life on the verge of becoming a Catholic I think for 40 years or something he was sort of 
had a belief in God, called himself a Christian. He was the one who first popularized Mother Teresa and went to see her in India. Well-known broadcaster and journalist in England at that time. Eventually he became a Catholic in his 80s, I think even after I did. So all of his writing seemed to me, or certainly the books that David recommended, uh, focusing on uh, this time of his life, which for him was very long, uh, decades, um, looking at the Catholic Church from the outside and thinking about it and wishing he could be part of it, as I read it, but somehow hesitating. Something stopped him. Uh, he just couldn't do it um, until much later, when, it, as I say, when he was in, in his 80s. Um, so I read all of this in a period of, of his work in five months. So I, I, for me, this spoke to me exactly as I was at, at that time. Um, I wasn't looking at Catholicism at that point. I was looking at religion in general. And I was comparing the practices with what I'd experienced. And I would discard something if it seemed at odds with what David had given me. Um, now, what I didn't know was what David had given me because he hadn't talked about this at all, was was completely consistent with the Catholic faith. So it was inevitable that I would at least see some, uh, recognize some things in Christianity when I looked at it. And David had done this very carefully. He encouraged me to read. He, encouraged, he didn't tell me not to look at other religions, but I think he trusted that uh, if he left me to it, um, and of course I always have free will, I would recognize... Uh, in Catholicism, what uh, what he given me? Now he was a he was a Catholic, but he hadn't mentioned this to me. As I, I keep saying that it was very important because I would have my prejudice would have caused me to run. I just thought I was getting a generic set of spiritual exercises, maybe a little bit New Agey, slightly traditional. I wasn't quite sure, but it it worked, so I did them. Um, and so. Uh, the, the story of uh, at that point is that I eventually honed in on Christianity. I rejected all the other religions. By the way, that something that I discovered at this point uh, was that the religions are not just the same. Um, they don't say the same things and present it in different ways. They have very kind different... The, the perennial philosophy yeah. view that there are these eternal truths that enlightened individuals have picked up on and distilled into religions... Yes. That, that was not what you discovered. Uh, that's not what I saw at all. There were clear differences and crucial differences. Not, I mean, I'm not just talking about the mythology, if I want to call it that, the story which described the person or the, the founding of the religion. I mean, the actual code of conduct, the practices, the things that matter that would affect me as a person mm -hmm. were very different. And, I, uh, and it was very clear to me that there was one which compared with what I'd been through, and that was Christianity. I then started to shop around churches, and David, I told this, I mentioned this to David, I think I'm a Christian, and I'm looking at you, he said, oh, he said, go to, um, go to this church in South Kensington at 11 o'clock. And we then moved on to some other part of the conversation. By this time, by the way, I'd been going through the process for, I, it was four years after I'd first met him, so... I just went to him for general advice as a friend by this time. We had a conversation. Then when I left his apartment, the thing that stuck in my mind, he just said, oh, by the way, lad, remember, go to the 11 o'clock. And 
what I didn't realize was that he directed me to solemn mass at the Brompton Oratory, which has this beautiful choir. It's a beautiful church. Everything is in harmony with the liturgy and the worship. Um, it was in Latin, so I didn't understand a word, and I didn't even know enough to know it was Latin. Hmm. Uh, I didn't know enough to be prejudiced against it, shall we say. Uh, I just knew I didn't understand it. And actually, I remember looking at it and thinking, I can't place this geographically or temporarily. It doesn't speak to me of hmm. any place or time. It's it's out, and I remember thinking this is sort of outside time and place. Um, so my reaction was not that this is European imperialism at work. It was yeah. that this is reflects something that is of another world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what I was hearing was Palestrina, uh, Polyphony, and Gregorian chant. Uh, the mass was for, the, for Catholics who are listening. It was Novus Ordo. It wasn't the the old mass. Uh, but it was ad orientem and done with all the solemnity and dignity of any traditional mass that I'd ever seen. Mm. Um, and it, it, the body language alone spoke to me of something special, the music, the art, um, the architecture. And it, it, it really drew me in that direction. Now, it was uh, some t- maybe a couple of years after that that I actually converted. I, I still had many questions about the faith, but that image of the beautiful liturgy drew me back. Now, the thing that has grown on me since I uh, became Catholic is the importance of the liturgy. For, as I started to look into the faith, um, I realized that the church places the worship of God um, in the highest order of activities that we can do it's what christian life is about it's the ultimate expression of the love of god and therefore is the source also that uh the wellspring if you like that feeds everything else we do um and uh so in this book i present the argument for the value of the liturgy and Mm -hmm. i do i try to do so so this is going a little bit beyond what david i try to do so um by presenting, in addition to the, the arguments that the church would make to a Catholic, uh, I, I guess you might call them natural law arguments as to how it is natural for man to worship God. He is made to do so. And this is why you see rites in other re- religions. Um, they're responding to our desire for God and the natural way in which we express that love. And so for full happiness, we need to express that. And that's that's why it isn't just about, well, I, I you know, religion is this man-made organization it is that too and wherever there are people there are problems but Mm -hmm. it it is ultimately god inspired and and he made us to express that Um, and my belief is that the catholic church has the fullest expression of that truth we can see echoes of it elsewhere Um, and i offer arguments for the reader who say he's he or she is a catholic that they that I'm thinking might be, he or she might be able to present to um, a, a non-believer as to why worship is important, and then you, what I, what I would do is, in a way, what David encouraged me to do: go and investigate and accept the principle, and then decide what worship I want to do. Okay, so you talk in part one. There's three parts in the book. You talk in part one about 
what the book offers, drawing on your own experience and recounting how the path to joy is one which leads us to God. You say that it's a joyful journey uh, and you explain what a personal vocation is. You talk about how it's linked to our capacity to draw others to God. That would be the evangelization portion. And then you also describe why a prayer life centered on worship of God in sacred liturgy is so important. Uh, and that it is only when our ultimate goal is the worship of God and sacred, sacred liturgy that these fruits are given to us in greatest abundance. So it's something that kind of builds, starting with just your most direct personal experience to an argument that might require a little bit more faith on the part of your reader that the most abundant, the most that you can get out of it requires this extra step. But for people who are coming to this book, maybe a little bit skeptical, the word liturgy is is either foreign to them or maybe even a little bit intimidating. You know, maybe they've never stepped in a church. And I have friends like this who I've wanted to recommend the book to who have been right on the verge. They kind of believe that, that Christianity has something to offer uh, or that I, I shouldn't say that it's not a... You know, it's not as if it's in this utilitarian sense of uh, something to be uh, just sort of used for your personal benefit. But, you know, they believe that it that it might be true in some way that that uh, that, you know, what modern ideologies or philosophies can't offer. But they're afraid to take that step into a church. So let's talk a little bit more about kind of the nuts and bolts, uh, the instruction manual as you call it, uh, that the second and third part of the book relate to. Uh, how do people get into it initially? What kinds of exercises do you recommend? And uh, what would you say to someone who is not of a, a Catholic background, but who senses that there might be something uh, to be gleaned? Right. Well, the, the first thing I would say is that you don't have to be a Catholic. You don't have to accept that the church is infallible or anything like that. Um, you just simply have to be prepared to do what the book suggests. Um, and, and initially, that you don't need to set foot in church. I didn't go to, to church at all going through most of the process. <coughs> um, that came afterwards. So uh, I did need to um, accept the possibility of um, God uh, David talked about a higher power, uh, something that wasn't me, that loved me. It is a relationship in love. It's not a, an inanimate force that runs the universe dispassionately, mm. shall we say. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we're establishing a relationship in love. And, and we, our lives improve because God wants us, if we, if we let him, uh, and we conform to his will, which is just simply stepping out of the way and letting him help us. Uh, he wants us to be happy. So how do I do that practically? Well, in the morning, I say, dear God, uh, please look after me today. Mm. I need your help. And at night, I say, thank you. Um, and he told me to write what he called a gratitude list uh, to cultivate gratitude for the day. And I remember saying, I, 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 what have I got to be grateful for? And he said, well, how about this, lad? And he took a pen and paper and he said, um, you're alive. Do you think that's worth being grateful for? I said, oh, begrudgingly, okay, all right. So he wrote alive on a piece of paper. You've got a bed to sleep in. You've got a roof over your head. You've got clothes to wear, food to eat. And he then, he would write it down only once I'd acknowledged that it was true. And he made, I remember him doing this. Is this right? And he, 
and and I, I didn't do say something once. And he said, "Is this right?" Yes, it is. Okay, it's true. I do have food to eat today. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> I am wearing clothes, uh, and uh, and then he paused and he said, "Right." He said, "What you have are those n- basic necessities of life, um, and." Furthermore, you're ahead of a good proportion of the world's population who don't know where the next meal is coming from. Um, so not only does this show you that you're getting great gifts in this life, mm-hmm. and you probably have for every day of your life so far, um, but also um, this is proof that when you ask God to look after you today, he did. This is written proof. It's there in black and white. And he always stressed the importance of writing it, even if it's just mm. on a scrap of paper and afterwards I throw it in the bin. He said it always crystallizes the thought in our mind that much more strongly if we have to write the word down. Um, and then he said, okay, there are your essentials. We're going to add a few luxuries. Is there anything else, anything that's good in the day? You know, sunshine, a cup of coffee, um, Never mind the bad things. Is there anything that's good? Write those down and on your knees, thank God, just very briefly, for each of them. And what I found is that when I practiced it, it did cultivate gratitude. In time, I started to feel grateful. Um, He encouraged um, that I read an ideal for the day. He gave me a statement called the Just for Today card, uh, which I'd never seen before. Uh, It's just got a, a list of the proposals just for today I will do this I will help others um, and the good thing about it is and it's it, I think the text of it is in the book but the good thing about it is that it it, it doesn't it, there's no mention of God or religion in it so it couldn't arouse my prejudice but I realized that what he was giving me in the gratitude list and this were meditations I'm raising my thoughts to something higher uh, and then ultimately it will uh, direct my experience. There's a there's a funny little thing actually in there, in that, or I thought it was funny. I there's a statement just for today. I will do somebody a good turn, and they I won't tell them what it is. It doesn't count if I tell them. Okay, so the idea is you do things without seeking the the, the warm thank you for doing it, and it's actually harder to do than you imagine to do good turns for people without them knowing. And so, a good turn being a British expression for a good deed or something nice. Oh, right. Would Americans not understand? Okay, yes, that's exactly, yes. Um, but that's one of the many charming British flirts that <laughs> shows up in the book that I intentionally didn't edit out because okay. I think that they are part of the voice. <laughs> okay. So I used, to, um, I used to go to work on the tube, on the, on the, the subway, the train each day. I was living in London. Uh, and that if anybody's ever done this, I imagine it's the same in New York or just on the BART here in San Francisco, the, the big thing is to get a seat. You, want, mm. you get your book, uh, bury your nose in it, sit down, and then just ignore everything until you can get off. And it, you know, it seems like productive time. But usually, unless you're at the end of the line, you can't. So you're hanging on to this sort of overhead bar, swaying around as the train does, trying to, with your spare hand to read a book and it just doesn't work. So what you, what you do is you, you try and manoeuvre yourself, or this is what I always did, manoeuvre myself so that uh, I was in the middle of the seating between the, the seats, although standing, and then I'd sort of watch out for people who looked like they were getting ready to get off and then sidle up and sit in as they got off. And so then you at least salvage some of the journey productively. 
Um, and so for my good turn, good deed, I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to work my way around so that I could have sat in that seat, but I'm going to hold back and let somebody else do it. Hmm. And they won't know that they're sitting there because I could have claimed that seat. Okay, so this, this is what I was like. And so I did this a few times. And the, the thing that really struck me was that actually that's what most people do. They hang back and wait to see whether there's anybody more deserving. They don't do what I did, which is, there's an empty seat, right, I'm in there. And then occasionally I'd see somebody grab it, doing what I did, and I'd think, you selfish so-and-so. <laughs> and once I actually saw somebody lean across and claim the seat with the tip of their umbrella from a distance so they get in. And it, you can imagine my indignation and, until I remembered, actually, uh, if I'd seen that six months ago, I'd have thought, that's a great idea. I'll, I'll do that myself. Um, so there were these little exor- spiritual exercises. And he never said I had to do them. He just told me to read the statement. But in time, I would see opportunities to do them. So it was a prayer, a process of prayer and meditation. And then I was also resolving to do the good thing, which meant being open to guidance from David. I had no moral code at that stage. Um, I'm not saying I was totally immoral, but I I didn't have anything really to guide me uh, that was concrete. And so I let David give me advice. And gradually, as I trusted him, I believed what he was telling me. And again, he used natural law arguments, but he was giving me a good, solid Catholic morality. Yeah. So how does this actually segue these exercises of uh, first in the morning, asking for God to take care of you, and then in the evening, expressing gratitude? Uh, How does that lead into the ultimate purpose of the book, which is to discover what God wants us to do? Okay, so what what that does is for someone like me, establish a connection with God, which um, when you come from nowhere, which is where I was, it's it's a, it's a habitual opening to God. So it establishes that contact and maintains it. Then, um, once he was happy that I had this as habit, these these daily suggestions, he then gave me a set of deep reflections, which are, um, in some ways are similar to a review of conscience. Uh, again, he used language that didn't evoke any religious prejudice. Um, but it was examining my moods and thoughts. So not just guilt, which um, people who review conscience will be familiar with, um, but also just unhappiness. What am I unhappy about? And he showed me that, act, that in fact my unhappiness was caused by self-centeredness, and he showed me how to analyse that. And I actually wrote down every example of unhappiness that I could. And it's rather like going on a monthly, you know, a month-long Ignatius retreat or something. This is work, and you know, I all my spare time, my weekends, and I even took some time off work involved writing this out and examining it and doing it. Then, and including dark thoughts, which I now believe everybody has. I, you know, I thought I was the only one. I, I can't speak for everybody, but I've heard this process. People have told me the results of this process, and. Mm. What I now realise is the very things that we think just separate us from humanity <laughs> unite us to fallen man. You know, we're all the same in some way. And it, it, I remember I read all this stuff out, which I thought were terrible, not just deeds, but really the thoughts. And he just turned to me and said, oh, I'm sorry to tell you this, lad, but you're just pretty average. 
<laughs> Immediately, I got a resentment because I wanted to be special. Ah. There you go. Um, so we did this, and what this process did was open me up even more deeply to God. I felt happier. It, it, remo- it gave me a process by which I could remove the resentment and fear, which was the cause of my unhappiness. Um, and he then encouraged me to do that daily, so that it, it just um, further opened up the channels to God. Then he took me through the process of discernment, which uh, I just thought was inspired. He asked me a, a, a simple question. He said, um, if you inherited so much money, I think he said a million pounds, but that probably wouldn't do it today. I, I <laughs> wouldn't buy your house in the Bay Area <laughs> anyway. But anyway, the idea is that there's enough money that you don't need to worry about the money. Um, suddenly you come into Bill Gates's fortune or something. Um, what would you actually choose to do with your day? And in terms of job, nine to five, five days a week. And then where would you go? Who, what, to the degree that you're able to choose, what would you do? And he encouraged me to think about that and write it down. And what it, he impressed upon was, was that we weren't talking about uh, jobs. It really was what I like to do. So um, the example he gave, and I've come across people like this, I don't know if it's a London thing, but in London there are lots of people who want to be you know, stars, particularly music, rock stars. Not in America, we don't have this problem. <laughs> We're <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, this was in West London, close to the King's Road, where you know, swinging 60s started and all this sort of thing. So I, but anyway, and people will say that. And I, David, I used to hear him, talk about to people about this the bits when they, when they were open conversation they said well um, that's fine there's nothing inherently bad about being a famous singer but you can't just be a famous singer nine to five five what, what do singers do that you like doing do you like singing do you like writing songs do you and so he would focus on the activity and uh, through that uh you develop an idea and if there's a number of things you can write down everything from your childhood dream to be a train driver when you were seven to things that you discovered later and so I just said I want to paint so he said okay that's what you do (coughs) excuse me and so I remember thinking then well how how do I do that I've already got a degree I can't afford to go to art school um he said, oh, it doesn't work like that. You just do the first step, and we'll talk about that. There are various principles that govern that. Um, You don't put your ability to put food on the table or to pay the rent at risk. You just do what you can. Take one step, and as long as it's taking you closer to where you're meant to be, um, then when you've taken the first, a second will become apparent. Doors will open in front of you. And... That is, the, that is the truth of it. My first step was an evening class at Chelsea College of Art, and I've got stories which I can give you. Maybe you might like to sort of prompt some if you think they're appropriate. But uh, um, these contacts would occur, just it seemed to me, by chance, and then doors would open. And even those times when I was being sidetracked, as it felt to me, I learned things which were later useful. The, the thing that David does say, just to bring it, to differentiate it from the think and grow rich idea, is that this is envisioning a goal, a, a, and I would say a telos, an end. Mm-hmm. So we would subject it to the question, is it good? 
Uh, it, can this be in harmony with our, our ultimate goal, which mm-hmm. is to be in union with God in heaven? And so it doesn't need to be a spiritual activity or something obviously religious. Um, but as long as it's not inherently immoral or bad, it, 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 we can be fulfilled. Through it. Mm-hmm. But we wouldn't think about that. Um, and then the other thing that he would point he would make is that um, there's two other th- important points. Here. Firstly, uh, we have to be happy today. And that's what that first part of the exercise, all those exercises did. They allowed me to enjoy the day regardless of whether I got this goal. Um, because the way he put it is good things come to happy people and happiness is a choice. Um, and in the end, if, if even if I get what I'm after, if I'm not able to enjoy today, here, now, I'm not going to enjoy the future either. Uh, happiness is a, a results from um, the things we do and they're spiritual things, like, like the, the things I was introduced to in the daily exercises. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that this is not, I'm not signing a contract. This goal is not a rod to beat me with, you know, mm-hmm. that I'm not making progress. He, he said, this is just a calling signal. You might end up doing that, but it might be, and this is what happened to me, that you end up doing something that's perhaps associated with it or even completely different, that at this point you just don't know about or you haven't imagined it's outside your experience. Um, and so... In a way, it's a minimum. It's not a maximum. It, 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 the only reason you won't get that, he said, is because um, you, you you come across something that's even better in the in the meantime, and you decide to stick with that. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the psychology behind the principles and kind of the prevailing paradigm of depression and anxiety, where we maybe think of these as. Uh, a condition, maybe it's even sort of, you know, an, an innate condition. Some people might be more predisposed than others, but it seems like from, from my experience and having kind of gone through a period, particularly in college, before I uh, began my conversion process to Christianity and ultimately uh, to Catholicism, I thought that similar, um, similarly to, to your experience of you know, well, what is what is the purpose of life? It seems like, you know, even in the kind of optimistic scenario, I graduate from college, end up with a quote unquote good job. Maybe I become a lawyer or something like like uh, like my dad was a lawyer. So it seemed like, you know, there, there's something that I could do. But I just had this image of sitting in an office and being completely miserable, being stuck in my head, stuck with this thought of, you know, kind of what is the point of it all? And the answer of uh, you know taking action uh, to discover what your purpose is um, incrementally you know just setting out in some direction that calls you and trying to trying to hear that um, I think that I kind of discerned that a little bit without the the guiding of um, of, of of the church and eventually I think that line of questioning led me to uh, to the faith but. Um, you you have this idea that we talked about a little bit uh, before this conversation, which was um, the the idea of when doing becomes being. Uh, so, how does that differ from a paradigm of, of psychology that you know happiness comes when we find the things that are true to our nature? Um, how does that differ from uh, from the prevailing psychology paradigm, which maybe says 
you know, you're unhappy because of a chemical imbalance or you're unhappy because of uh, childhood trauma. And maybe there is some role, in, you know, you do talk about part of the process is going back into the past and identifying the roots of your fears and resentments, or we could say, you know, anxiety and depression or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, how would you, how would you distinguish this approach from what, what, uh, the prevailing psychological paradigm might suggest. Right. So, the as it appeared to me, um, the the first thing is that while these external events might contribute to my unhappiness, they're real. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think my memory is flawed, and there is injustice in the world, and I don't like it, and um, and it can make me unhappy. However, um, with a faith in God, uh, I know objectively that all things, including evil, are given to us as um, so that a greater good can come out of it. So, I tr- and even ultimately, even death is, is the greater good comes out of it. The example of the saints and the martyrs tell us that. Now, don't worry, I'm not saying that knowing that in alone is going to help you. I. I could have heard that, and I thought well, that's all very well, but it doesn't—I really—it doesn't make me feel any better now. Yeah. How do I change how I feel? I don't think I can do that. And what this process of looking at my unhappiness did was allow me to understand that, regardless of the justice of it, um, my reaction was self-centered. I was thinking about me, and. Um, in an enlightened, with a little e way, uh, we would probably call this sin. It's it's mm-hmm. thinking about me and not thinking about God and not responding in love. Now it's it's very natural. I, so I, 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 this isn't done to rub my nose in it and make me feel even worse because not only have I reacted badly, but I feel badly because I've sinned. Um, it's it's not doing that. It's allowing me to recognise that this is what it is. I acknowledge the fact and. When I confess it mm-hmm. uh, in this sort of unofficial confession, if you like, with David, uh, talk about it, it goes. And I have found that that, I thought I was depressed. I was ready to go to see a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to write to a few, and I found that this dealt with it. Um, and I've, I've never felt the need since. So I'm not going to say I'm the same as everybody, or there aren't some situations. Now, as regard the chemical imbalance, um, well, it, it is a chemical. We're body and soul, so a spiritual imbalance will be manifested as a chemical imbalance. It's mm. inevitable. Um, now, the question is, what's the best way of dealing with it? Is it to try and is the chemical imbalance a, a cause or an effect? And I think with free will, the movement is spiritual first, uh, or at least simultaneous. And we say, if we, we can at least, therefore, if it is simultaneous, change the spiritual yeah. and therefore affect the, the physical. Okay. Um, and again, the, tr- the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Does this work? And my experience is that it does. So again, I've never need to go, needed to go on antidepressants. And I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to say that nobody ever does or nobody ever should or there isn't some use for this mm-hmm. at all. I'm just going to say that I haven't. And yeah. A lot of the people that I've seen go through this process haven't. Yeah. I've kind of wondered about this idea of treating symptoms 
uh, in a way that ignores the root cause being an especially dangerous path. So when it comes to, you know, even some, some sorts of uh, psychiatric medication or could even be things like, you know, doing yoga or therapeutic exercises that make you feel better, but in order to sort of ignore the root cause. And that might be a little bit of a stretch. And I don't mean to say that there aren't cases where, you know, moving around more or, you know, moving your body in healthy ways can't be parts of the solution. But I do think that there is a widespread tendency in myself included to kind of try to manipulate God into doing what we want, or at least, you know, go on a path where, you know, it's, it's what we want in spite of the, uh, the repercussions for our own health and happiness. And then we try to put a bandaid on it that just lets us live with the, uh, the underlying disease. Yes. I, or I can really talk best, I think, in the light of my own approach and experience. Um, as David Aguetta used to say to me, you're the world's number one expert in your own experience. So hmm. Stick to that. But um, I believe what, you, what you've just described, that um, I was the, the victim um, of all of these of, of circumstances. Um, but it wouldn't have helped me until I was ready to hear this process because, the, because of two things that I feel are absolutely necessary in order to change that. One is, um, first of all, faith, that there is a loving God. And uh, how, how do I believe this? Well, I did these prayers, I did these exercises in the way that I described. But also, that's that coming back to this process of one person helping another. David didn't charge me for this. Um, he did it for free. Um, and I don't charge the people that I help directly with mm. this. I, I, I just do it. Um, and I ask that for reassurance for those that I help, that they uh, do do that as well. So, um, you know, I'm quite happy to charge for spin-offs and things, but ultimately, that's uh, at its heart. This, there has to be available to everybody one thing given freely to another. Mm-hmm. And what that does is makes God's love present in the relationship, and it's love that transforms. Now, I said you don't have to be don't have to believe in that mechanism beforehand but you have to be open enough to be able to participate in it the other thing is that the idea that there is a moral good there is a good that is external to how i feel now when i came in that good that was in other words the moral code is not just i do what feels right it's that i conform to something that is external to me uh, regardless of how i feel and then the belief is that if i do what is good that will draw me towards good feelings. So in other words, the good feelings follow the good actions. Now, I was lucky that while I wouldn't have accepted the Ten Commandments or something, I did accept them as David articulated to them. I trusted him. And again, it's because he loved me. Uh, He showed me love and care in in his own particular way, in a way that was appropriate that I could have accepted. Um, and it's, that's why this person-to-person contact is so important, I think. Yeah, someone who's listening to this might not even realize uh, without seeing the book how uh, closely this idea of uh, you know, person-to-person and the relational nature, nature of, uh, of, of God uh, 
the role that plays in the book. Um, and I was just thinking when you were talking about uh, the the line that closes each chapter where you say, bend my heart to your will, O God. I ask this in the name of my Lord Jesus Christ. So that makes it clear that you know, this is a, uh, a book that has a more concrete idea of God than, um, than one that, you know, it's not, it's not just that it's relational. It's actually relational with a human being who lived and walked the earth and, you know, used words. And we have these words yes. written down and passed down through the church, uh, you know, throughout time. Uh, but it is, I, I would emphasize, uh, it is a book of, uh, you know, of, of wisdom from the church. And it has uh, a whole section on the dark night of the soul, which uh, I think would be interesting to have just a, a short conversation about um, this experience of, yes. uh, for you, was the dark night of the soul something that you experienced prior to working the steps or, uh, or you actually, I'll, I'll let you kind of take yes. it from there. How, how did you discover this idea and, and how did it relate to your um, transformation? Well, the, the reason I included it is, is that a lot of people think about this. So I, I in the in the flush, the first flushes of the of experiencing this, I ran off down to the spiritual bookshop, uh, which is called. There's one in Covent Garden in West London called Watkins, and it's got everything from crystal gazing books mm. to it's got the whole range, including old Catholic wisdom. It's an amazing place. Uh, in fact, David told me just to go down there, just browse the titles, pull the, those that appeal, pull them out, read a page here and there, and if you if you like the sound of it, buy it and read it, and, uh, and never feel bound to read the whole thing once you bought it. And he said, through that, you'll you'll probably find things that are useful. Anyway, so the dark night of the soul. Um, it's very easy to this idea that we're meant to be happy can be resisted. Um, because the premise here is that uh, I'm do to put it bluntly, I'm doing something wrong if I'm unhappy. Mm -hmm. And people who are devout and pious might be resistant to that idea. Now, as I say, this is get looking at it in a very unusual way. It's 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 the 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 the, the way it analyzes our responses unhappy are very natural, so it doesn't rub our noses. But nevertheless, people can not, not want to face that. There is a certain leveling of pride in this. And so, and I felt this. I, a part of me thought, well, I, I don't want to admit that I couldn't handle life, that I need advice from this guy. You know, I'd yeah. swing a little bit. And, I've, and so the dark night of the soul, I thought, well, here it is. The title tells me that if I'm holy and spiritual, there's a period of unhappiness. It's a holy, a holy depression that the very holy have. Um, and so I got the book and started to read it, and it would describe the anguish of St. John of the Cross. And I just thought, this is it. I'm feeling that, I'm feeling that, I'm feeling... Everything he described, I thought I was going through. And I, eventually, I, I mentioned to David that I, I, was, I thought I was going through the dark night of the soul, and, and actually the steps, the, the, these processes, the, the eight principles, wouldn't work. And he just turned to me and said, don't kid yourself, lad, you're not that holy. <laughs> um, but the, you know, he said only the very St. John of the Cross and Teresa Avila and a few others go through. But, but I don't think he was saying that this would be denied me. But also I read, so I went back and a few people brought this up with me, even as I was writing the book, actually. Mm -hmm. And so I went back and reread it. And 
And in fact, I hadn't understood what he was saying. So John of the Cross was not describing something that is in itself bad. Um, he's just, he's talking about the denial of lesser pleasures than God, that God uh, stops us from gaining pleasure in those in order for us to reach for the highest. Mm. So it's a way of um, taking away the distractions. Now, they're not things that are necessarily bad in themselves. And for most people, we're quite at liberty to derive pleasure for them. So um, I don't deny myself, you know, the odd cup of coffee or something. I take great pleasure in it. And for most people, as long as everything is ordered and not distracting us from the highest good, mm -hmm. they can play their part in a, in a rich and pleasurable life. Uh, but for certain mystics, um, God wants to draw us on uh, to greater heights by denying us that we can do those things but they're just no longer pleasurable um, is the way I understand it and John of the Cross wrote this to, he says so that people who experience it will know that this isn't a bad thing that through hope that transcends suffering we can take solace and realize that this is a good thing and the fruits are wonderful yeah let's talk about the supernatural and miracles uh that's an idea that I think a lot of people resist, uh, but you make the point in the book that we can expect miracles and that uh, if we are willing to let go of manipulating God to do what we want and discover what God wants us to do, first of all, that's even better. And second of all, that's where you, you get the potential for miracles. You, you derive that potential from lining up your will more closely with God's will. So it's not like uh, it's it's not you know some sort of cheap magic trick or uh, I imagine that in that in that bookstore there would be a lot of books telling you that you can manifest these miracles without any sort of great sacrifice. Yes. But you say that it's you know we can only expect miracles to the extent that we what? Well, that we conform to God's will. The phrase that um, Benedict says is that through. Um, Actually, I'll, I'll backtrack a bit because it's interesting that this question arises up. The, so, of course, people, God isn't restricted to the, his sacraments, to his church. It is possible, and the church acknowledges this, that people who aren't members of the church go to heaven. Uh, they, they, they will do so because of the presence of, of the church on earth. But um, if they acknowledge God at the end, and the truth is presented to them and accept it, they may go to heaven. So the question is, why worry about converting? And the argument, or one argument, that uh, that Benedict XVI uses is that by participating in the sacraments, we he uses the phrase, we, in the sacramental life, we participate in the creative love of God. In other words, what we want is what God wants. That allows us to move closer to that ideal. And so what we wish is what God wishes. And a miracle is, is something that happens outside of the ordinary <laughs> that we want. Um, and we wouldn't call a miracle uh, something miraculous if it's very bad. We wouldn't use that word. Um, and so he's saying that, that if God is, has all power and is all good and is capable of acting outside the natural order, the laws of physics and chemistry, and we're in tune with God's will, then what we want can be miraculous. Now, I'm not going to say that I've seen... Um, miracle healings mm -hmm. um, but good things have happened to me in ways that uh, at the very least you'd say they're, they're remarkable coincidences 
that that's the level that it tends to happen to me and maybe that's my lack of faith you know that i haven't yet materialized a, a three-course meal or anything like that uh or a million pounds in the bank that hasn't happened i've prayed for it but it hasn't happened so um you know it, i'm not saying that uh that automatically we could this is sort of a a shopping list in which things come to us at will but the more we're in tune with it then the more that what we want is what God wants and I would not rule out things that just cannot be explained by the natural order right um, they, they have occurred they're on record in people's lives why not in ours too I don't think that we're any you know, we, there's any reason why they shouldn't happen now yeah I think of it as kind of there are outcomes that have occurred in my life that were better than anything that I could have possibly planned. And that, that seems to be just the, the trajectory of life when you open yourself up to the possibility of good things happening that are not a direct result of your own pure effort or willpower. Or Yes, uh, but by the same token... We can. We must be open to that possibility. But by the same token, things can go against us as well. Mm -hmm. There is injustice and bad things can happen to good people. And we mustn't make the mistake of assuming that because something bad has happened, I'm not doing this well enough. Um, <clears throat> it's worth looking at what we do. But the, the great thing about this is it's win-win. It opens up greater possibility of good things happening, I think, things that we want. Um, but at the same time, when things happen that we don't want, and that does happen to people in, in most people's lives at some time, um, it opens us up to the possibility of a solace, a consolation that is greater than the, uh, the suffering that it causes. Uh, it may not even remove the suffering. St. Paul prayed three times for whatever his uh, malady was a to be removed. A thorn in his side. Whatever we, yeah. Whatever that was. He prayed for it to be removed, um, and it wasn't. But it mm -hmm. didn't stop him being happy because of his faith. You know, he just okay. This is what God wants. Then there'll be a good reason. Yeah, there are a lot of specific exercises that you talk about in the book that we won't have time to go into in depth. Uh, you talk about uh, lectio divina. You talk about contemplative prayer. These are different ways of praying that are rooted in. Uh, Christian mysticism, Western mysticism. Uh, can you touch on those just briefly and how those play into the exercises? Yeah, so um, once these would come later, um, it, it's always a good idea to have a spiritual director, particularly if someone's coming to this from the Catholic faith where they, they'll they be aware of these things. I, in one sense, I was lucky. I was a clean sheet, so to speak. So I just started with the process uh, came to the church and then learned these things gradually. And that was a nice, solid, uh, sort of logical order in my own development. Um, but the, that as our, prayer, as our prayer life develops, then we should start to be aware of these uh, traditions in Christian prayer, and that, but at the same time understand how to order them so that they're all in harmony with our ultimate end. And uh, my re feeling is that the, the greatest expression of prayer and the greatest thing we can do in this life is worship God in the liturgy. Mm -hmm. And all else should be directed to that. So whilst I might do some contemplative prayer, and I do, I, I do contemplative prayer daily, actually with visual imagery, which I describe mm -hmm. in the book, um, 
it's not for the experience of the prayer itself. It's that I, which nevertheless may be very um, pleasurable, and God might even reveal Himself to me powerfully during it if He chooses. He, I, I'm not aware that He has for me, but I do it because I believe it forms me as a better person to come to Him in worship um, mm. and to be open to Him in my daily living, um, in the times outside the prayer. And this is a personal journey of exploration, ideally in conjunction with a spiritual director. I think somebody who knows about these things. Yeah, so the, the liturgical prayer, uh, some of that is individual, some of that is in community, uh, or is, is liturgy strictly what you do at church with other people? Uh, well, at its heart, for Catholics, it's the Mass, or for Eastern Rite Christians, we call the Divine Liturgy. Um, but there is also the Liturgy of the Hours, um, which is, uh, and so these are called public forms of worship, that they're, they're, they're done by all people, uh, each according to his role. Um, and the Liturgy of the Hours is the praying of the Psalms at regular times. Uh, and although it's, it's public in nature in the sense that it can be done publicly and people can join in, there's no harm in, uh, in us lay people doing this at home uh, if, if we can. So I pray the Liturgy of the Hours myself daily. Um, and I encourage people to, to look into this. I, the Liturgy of the Hours especially, I think, if, once people are doing the, the worship of God in church, the Liturgy of the Hours is a great thing to have. It, it's a spiritual bridge, so to speak, between church and daily living. It, it brings the graces, if you like, of and whatever the, the Mass gives me, it brings it out in some way, draws it out into my daily living. It, it, it's, it's a participation in, it, it derives its power from that central act of worship in the church. Um, but nevertheless, for those who are not in a state of grace to um, go to Mass and participate in communion, uh, the Liturgy of the Hours is, no, is, is still very helpful. As, as a baptised layperson, for example, uh, my priestly vocation uh, is invoked when I pray the Liturgy of the Hours. So it's, it's, it has great power. And even to someone who isn't baptised, there's benefits to praying the Psalms. So all of these things uh, help us. Um, it's just that through the sacramental life of the Church, it, it, we get, and following her guidance in how we participate, we get the greatest, I would say, the mm. greatest benefit. Marshall McLuhan once commented, he was a Catholic convert, and he said that converts are the worst kind of Catholic. Uh, so you and I, as, uh, as converts, were, were maybe uh, in, a, in a position of, I, I think maybe he was uh, talking about a, a certain sort of uh, zeal or something that, that converts bring uh, with them. But I think that, as you comment, the beauty of being a blank slate is that we can discover these ancient traditions as if they're completely new and uh, try to convey them and you know evangelize in a way that breathes new life uh, into the into the faith at least that's what I hope uh, and then we also have talked uh, about kind of uh, the, the group community element of this so we live here in a in a group house where we have forms of communal prayer. We have a monthly Vespers, uh, which can you describe a little bit what that Vespers is and why you have uh, 
tried to spearhead that. <laughs> yes, um, because I think for the liturgical prayer, Vespers, for, the, for those who don't know, is one of the offices or one of the services, if you like. It's evening prayer, and it's part of the uh, repeated offices, uh, services of the liturgy of the hours. And so we're marking the evening hour, if you like. And Vespers is just, I think, the Latin name for it, and it's, it's come into the English. Um, so I always believe that even as an individual within this group of people, um, if I'm praying the Liturgy of the Hours, not only does that benefit me, but it, it's benefiting the community. The Liturgy of the Hours is the prayer of community. It, it opens us up in love, if you like, to others. And the more that we can participate communally, the more powerful that is. And not everybody is, is as enthusiastic about it as I am, I realise that. But So what I've done, I've suggested that we have a, a monthly potluck and vespers and then sort of social, and we invite people from outside to come together and join us. And it, it, people come, and not everybody wants to come every month, but it's something that I've taken on myself to do. And I know you, you participate in that as well. Um, and it's certainly, I think... For the people in the house, it, it, my sense is that it does draw us together when we, when we do that. It's one of those things you can't prove. Uh, I just get a sense of it and I'm encouraged enough to want to keep doing it. Now, not everybody lives in a place where there's any sort of communal sense, but it's always possible to have a dispersed community where mm. a group of friends get together monthly in somebody's house and does this, or bi-monthly. If that means every two months, or whatever it is, just just coming together and praying the liturgy of the hours is very very powerful, I think, and uh, we're very interested in how we can find community today. It's one of the burning questions of the um, of the modern world, I think. This sense of estrangement, um, and I think that the, the, this process reestablishes that connection with God supernaturally. Or a super, should we say, it invokes the supernatural, something beyond certainly anything I can do by my own powers. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we want to create community for all the practical things which can be done, which are very good, uh, coming together in prayer, even just monthly, would be very powerful in creating it and uh, establishing it. Yeah. yeah. It's funny how the Mass or the Divine Liturgy is centered around an altar, which is also a table, and there's a meal at yes. the table. Uh, and then there's, there's this really exalted form of the Mass, like what you described at the Brompton Oratory, which is kind of of no particular place or time. But then we can also think about the early church and before the liturgy had developed into, into what it is today, uh, the kinds of the ways that people would have celebrated uh, Eucharist, just coming together in, in people's homes and this ritual kind of uh, evolving out of, but still, I mean, it's, you've got the table, uh, you know, the, the bread and the wine. Um, so community, yeah, we, we, we think, you know, the lack of community is expressed in a lot of different ways and could be a big player in things like depression and, and the, just sense of uh, detachment from each other. So this would be one way to uh, come together more frequently with some sort of uh, purpose that, you know, anyone of, of goodwill can get behind. 
Um, also, the, uh, the workshops uh, is something. We've got a workshop manual coming out for the book soon. And again, the book is The Vision for You, How to Discover the Life You Were Made For. Uh, David Clayton is the author. You can find it on thewayofbeauty.org or on Amazon. The workshop manual, what will that include? And then uh, what do you envision for building additional fellowship or helping people build their own sorts of fellowships out of this? Right. Well, I, 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 my hope is that this will develop organically. People will want to come together and pray and do this and help each other. And so the exact form, I'm just happy to see how it how it happens, uh, assuming it does. If anything happens, that'd be great. Um, but uh, the idea that I had was trying, maybe seeing whether you could have a weekly gathering. And so uh, my brother and I, my brother Robert, who's also been through this process, um, we had a, tried an experiment. We, we, at the, the church across the road, St. Jerome's, we had a weekly meeting and we just invited people to come along and we would focus on eight different aspects of this process and, and have a, a set reading. And then we would just share our experience of what we'd done and allow people to talk about their experiences if they had any. So it's very loose, uh, not uh, very relaxed. Um, and then we would pray Vespers in a very simple way, just pr pray the Psalms and sing them. Uh, and we learned some simple chants. And th this, this seemed to be pretty successful. As a result of this, three or four people came along and went through the process, hmm. um, and there was, a, there was a bond of fellowship. It's, so out of this came the, these, this reduced form of the program, if you like, the essence of it. It's eight talks. Um, and this might be something that not only could be the basis of groups for fellowship or a, a place where people can come if they're interested in meeting people who, who have done this process, should that happen. Um, but also, uh, it is something that perhaps, uh, because this was intended for people, the workshops were certainly intended for a different profile of person, that it might be religious people, but also... We're in the East Bay here. My, my thought was perhaps we could um, engage people's new agey tendencies, if you like. That My sense is that in the East Bay, people are looking for mysticism and mm -hmm. uh, many are misdirected. They know that the, the material uh, world alone does not satisfy their needs. And so there's a lot of Buddhism and I'm not even sure if it's a Buddhism a Buddhist from the East, for example, would recognize. It, it seems to be a sort of California... Uh, flavoured uh, approach uh, but uh, I think people are sincere in looking for this and I, my, so my thought was well maybe we can present this a bit like David did to me and so not only might this be useful for workshops but it could be something that if you understand the process and want to give somebody something to read and you know they're going to be prejudiced by all the reference to the Catholic Church in the, the big book you could give them this reduced version at least it would tell them what they have to do Right. Yeah, I think uh, there is a tendency to look at um, what the, the spirituality that people cobble together from various sources. Uh, a lot of it, you know, you can find parallels to what they're talking about directly within Scripture, but then there's, all, there's always something missing. And uh, you could say on, on one level, maybe it's uh, the cross that people find to be the biggest scandal it's the you know what what they can't can't swallow or you know something about the 
you know, reading the Old Testament and having a, you know, a kind of image of a God who is uh, just vengeful. And, and that would be, you know, one reading or interpretation of the Old Testament that might incline people away from the faith. But I think that what's interesting about the way that you're presenting it is it's what you're missing out on um, by ascribing to a more nebulous version of spirituality is actually the best parts of Christianity. You're yes. missing out on the incarnation. You're missing out on, uh, do you talk at all about, um, I guess in, in this book, you don't, you don't really talk about uh, any sort of uniquely Catholic devotions like the, uh, the blessed mother or, or anything like that. But no, I, I don't. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. In the, the, another book that I wrote, The Little Oratory, um, I think I might even refer to that in this book. So The, the Little Oratory, which I wrote with Lila Lawler, um, contains a much more thorough description of, if, if you like, how to build up a pattern of prayer that involves devotions and personal prayer as well. Yeah. Um, so, and so I didn't talk about personal devotions in this book. Um, my main goal really was to get people onto the starting with the liturgy if, if you like and trying to break down that prejudice against what, what people say in inverted commas is organized religion and say that you need all you know unless I'm going to be in a religion of one if I turn up and somebody is doing the same thing as I have we're organized so it, right. it, and so we have to be an organized religion if it's any good unless each of us really is, you know, I'm unique and I'm the only one who understands what's good for humanity. Yeah. Which even I, in my self-centeredness, can't believe is true. Yeah. So in line with the recommendations of the program, I, I'm going to ask you a question that I think is pretty much at the very beginning of the exercises, and that's spelling out your wildest dreams. Uh, and then you, you were told by David uh, Burtwistle? Burtwistle. Burtwistle. Yeah, yeah. He, to, he told you that what you could expect is even better than your wildest dreams because if it's truly in line with God's will for your life, then it will be better than what you could come up with on your own. But in the in the spirit of the exercise, what uh, is your wildest dream for what this program becomes? Uh, we talk a little bit, we go on these quarterly hikes and we talk about, we share uh, some of our goals for the next three months and then we check back in and see how much progress we've made. Uh, what what are your wildest dreams for? What What do you hope that this will turn into here okay. in the Bay Area in particular? Yeah, so thinking wildly, as you've invited me to do. So mm-hmm. this, uh, the, the, the phrase that David uses, have your head in the clouds, but your feet on the ground. So we live in today, we take practical steps, but there's no harm in, if we don't think of the greatest thing, it's never, it's one thing's for certain, it's never going to happen. So mm-hmm. let's imagine that. Um, so I would love to see... Uh, uh, the East Bay, which in, in some, you know, we're in, this is Berkeley, uh, Oakland, and then also San Francisco, the Bay Area, um, is in a sense the epicenter of sort of anti-Christian liberalism, I would say. And I would like to see the beginnings of the conversion of the area. That's, what, that's, that's why I've come here. Um, I'm interested in engaging with people. I love talking to people from around here, by the way. I, I love the area. I don't find it depressing to be here. Uh, I see lots of signs that of hope. Um, so that's what I would like. Um, and if it does what it did for me and for lots of people, that would be wonderful because uh, I'll, I'll finish by just describing 
a story, and I tell this story in the book as well. Um, uh, as I w went through life, and even David died, incidentally, when I was nine, nine years after I met him, which is 20, 20 years ago now. Um, but I always wondered whether what he'd given me was right in the eyes of the church. He was a Catholic, but he wasn't a priest or anything like that. And um, so when I, when I met experts in the field, I would ask them. And one of them was a priest at the Duomo in Florence. He was a, an art historian from Yale, an American, who had a late vocation. He used to take people on tours, become a priest, and was now... Um, on the staff, part of the Italian church. And one way or another, I managed to get to meet him. It's quite difficult to do so because all the everybody wanted to see this art historian priest, all the British and American people it, it were in Florence and Italy. So eventually I managed to see him and I wanted advice on setting up art schools. And uh, so I thought I'd just describe my plan to him and see what what he said. So he welcomed me in, and I just launched into it. And this is a, something I'd thought about for years, a speech I'd, you know, I'd rehearsed many, many times, so I knew exactly what I was going to say. And he listened to me, and he said, I think this, this will work, actually. You might like to change this, you might like to change that, but this works. He asked me a few questions, and said, okay, I think there's a good chance this will work. So I was very encouraged by this. And then he said... Furthermore, I think you should do it. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I think it's your personal vocation to do this. And I said, why? And he said, I just, the way you talk about it, the passion with which you do it, the, your reasons for doing it, I don't know precisely what he saw, but that's what he said to me. And then he said something that was interesting. It was both good and bad from my point of view. He said, because I, th I thought, well, at the stroke of a pen, he could help me. He could open doors and establish. He said, I'm not going to help you with this. I want you to go ahead and do this. Uh, but he said, one thing that I'm certain about is you're meant to do this. And if you do, I can't even promise you that you'll succeed, he said. <laughs> he said, but what you will do, whether you're aware of it or not, is you will draw people to the faith because that is what our personal vocation is. When we're fulfilled and we're striving for what we want to do, we will we will be fulfilled. What we want to, to do, if it can coincide with God's will, of course, then we will be fulfilled. And it is that that attracts people to the faith. And he said, you may not even be aware of results in that area. You just don't know how you're affecting people. But it, one thing is for certain, you will be happy and fulfilled if you follow that, he believed. Um, and I thought that was very interesting. And so I've held that, held on to that thought. And I would love to see that, that effect in, in the East Bay. And also, in, we're aware of a crisis in Western culture. Why not try to transform the culture and evangelize the culture person to person in this way? So your vision for the vision for you, uh, getting more concrete, you've talked about retreats, Oh yes, I, I, if there's interest, I would. I'm sponsor people already. A couple of people have contacted me and said, "Will you take me through the process?" And so I'm doing that as, to the degree I have capacity. Um, but I would like to have see these workshops set up. I'd like to see people setting up communities whereby they derive more than just simply a personal path from this, um, and all of this then shaping the culture and, and society. Retreats, I, I happily be involved with where we go through the process maybe in a concentrated way 
and uh, actually then people can learn to chant the Liturgy of the Hours in English, um, which I think is very powerful if we can do that, and that I've learned how to do that, so I'd happily pass that on. If you ask me for what my what the life I would enjoy, it's just passing this on and then having these workshops and retreats and just my whole life revolving around that, I think, and then a bit of painting on the side would be would be wonderful. Yeah. You're in the Bay Area. It does seem like spiritual retreats are a dime a dozen. Yes. Um, that doesn't mean that this is the one, of course. We have to we have to wait and see. But I think that somebody should be trying this. Uh, the, the more people that try, the more we'll find the one that actually gives them what they're looking for, which is Western mysticism, which is, in other words, by that I mean Christian mysticism. Um, that gives that will give people what they really want, I believe, if we package it right. Here we are sitting in the uh, little <coughs> outdoor patio area of the convent where uh, this was one of the things I think that was on the list of your goals of one of our hikes recently, and now we can see that it's it's coming to fruition. So it's more proof that the that the process works. So again, the book is the vision for you. How to Discover the Life You Were Made For. It's available at thewayofbeauty.org and on Amazon. Uh, I've been speaking with its author, David Clayton, from the St. Jerome's Convent in El Cerrito. Uh, David, do you have any closing comments? No, just uh, good luck and, and uh, pray for me and I'll pray for you. I, I just hope that through this we can see a change in, in society and certainly in your lives. Amen. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org, and if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com.